Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. We're all living inside concentric circles of private and public, inner and outer. From the time we're small, we start to understand that these circles aren't always friendly to one another. There's friction at their borders. The stuffed bunny that keeps your heart whole gets you tormented at school. The people you love most don't look or sound like the cool people on TV, and neither do you. This is true to some extent for all of us, but if you're growing up black in the other America, the one where everyday life is full of the kinds of experiences that keep cable news commentators shaking their heads 24-7, the friction is something else entirely. Can you own your own life, the places and the people you love, while striving to be a part of a world that created the conditions it judges them for? Can you live in both places at once? These are some of the questions at the heart of the project that is survival math, notes on an all-American family. In these lyrical and meticulous essays, Mitchell S. Jackson tries to wrap his mind around his own coming of age in Portland, Oregon, looking with relentless honesty and above all love at the frictions at the heart of his America, his family, and himself. Welcome to Think Again, Mitchell. Ah, thank you. That was a beautiful intro. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. I mean, as a starting point, as you were listening to that, I'd be curious as to what that brought up. I was thinking about this, the friction. I mean, I wrote some stuff last night and I was talking about how I feel like when I'm at the kind of uh, peak writing power that I'm in a kind of gap between my two lives, which feel like two lives at least, like, you know, the kind of former life of me growing up and getting into that, uh, I don't know, living like a rap song, really. Okay. And then uh, growing out of that and experiencing whatever kind of troubles I had, but then kind of moving into academia and not even, I guess not even willingly, but I'm, now I'm here and right. I've kind of embraced this second iteration of myself. But I think what I'm really trying to do is like get in the middle and in that middle is friction. I was thinking about throughout the time reading the book, I was thinking about this delicate balancing act. You're writing for a broad reading public. Yeah. I think I'd be remiss not to say that probably a lot of your readers are white. Yeah. Yeah. And like you're representing your life and you're and you're trying to do justice to the places and the people and yeah. and, and and to the reality of those people. Um your aunt who you say make a point of saying she was a beloved mother, a beloved yeah. sister, yeah. but who terrible things may have happened to or right. may be living in a very different way from some of your readers. Yeah. And I, that just struck me as a really difficult tightrope act, how to do justice to that, how to feel the prurient eyes of the prying outsider public on your own life. Yeah. I do a lot of what feels like monologuing mm. or even kind of talking to either my former self or like it's almost like I'm sending a letter to someone that's and it's really intimate. Right. And I think if you can get into that space, it's like, all right, well, then anyone else can just overhear this letter. Um, right. And that's really They'll make to of me, it what they do. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. So I try not to concern myself too much with the kind of reading public, though I know, I mean, it's there and obviously I'm, a, I'm publishing a book. So then a certain way you have to court that. But like it feels really inauthentic to be writing towards them because I also don't know. I mean, I do think they would need it, but I think they need it in a different way than the people like I imagine as kind of my essential readers. Yeah. Who do you imagine as your essential readers? Uh, if I could identify him, I would say it's like my 20 year, 21 year old self. You know, right. like a guy who, if he caught wind of the right kind of information, he might make a turn. Mm. But if he doesn't, it's going to end up not to his liking. And I also think there's like the kind of class stratification even inside black culture. So there's like the kind of snooty black folks who like turn their nose up because they got, you know, great degrees and they go to the right places. They Howard graduates. And I want them to reflect on that. Like, like, no, we're all really in this together. I think mm -hmm. both mm -hmm. of those people need this kind of story. Yeah, I guess before all that other stuff went down, Bill Cosby was kind of occupying that space. Yeah. Like, 
wonderful though he was yeah. like for American culture yeah. he was he was kind of being that tisk tisk we got to get it together right yeah kind of guy <laughs> yeah. right yeah yeah now he's working on his own now uh, he's parole whole <laughs> <laughs> another story now yeah. yeah yeah speaking of those monologues or letters the first essay of the book yeah. or maybe it's the prologue it's yeah. to Marcus who I guess is the first known to history black man to set foot in yeah. Portland. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that was really, really <laughs> powerful. I mean, I discovered him, I don't know, five, six years ago. And it just really struck me that his fate uh, was what it was in this place that became Oregon. And I was like, man, we were just destined not to be here. Like this place never loved us. And then I started really interrogating the history of it and, you know, obviously found out about the exclusion laws and get out of here before sundown and all of those kind of things that when I look at the Portland now and I see people like riding around so happy and cheery and it's really monolithic, I go, oh, well, this was all of a plan. And, you know, if I was a white person, like, I would want to be in Portland too. Like it's utopia. So, I mean, for the listeners, there's the line, I think, in that essay, this was never our Eden. I yeah. think you say that. Yeah. Which is or never intended to be our Eden or right. whatever, which is that it was designed essentially as a place of opportunity for white people. Yeah. It was the first state that was founded with an exclusion law in its constitution. And I think just that very fact lets you know what they thought about the project of othering, about black people, people of color. Exclusion meaning you can't live here. Exclusion meaning you can't live there. Right. And it actually was it was on the books, though not enforced, for a very long time. I think it didn't come off maybe until like the, you know, it was the 20th century. Mm-hmm. So I think what's really interesting to me is like looking at Portland now, I go home to Northeast Portland and it's beautiful. It's like a really clean city and people look so happy and I go and I can get, a th- I don't even drink beer, but they're like, you know, here's a thousand <laughs> beers for you to choose from. And it's really like, it's it's almost satirical. Like everyone has a big handlebar <laughs> mustaches. And I'm like, I mean, you've seen the show Portlandia. I've never po- seen it, never, but I know uh, yeah, I've seen like, you know, that's it. Yes. You know, yeah. right. So it, it, yeah. this is, this is what I imagine the show is. And I'm like, but for them, it is really great. But then I, I wonder how many of them know what it took for them to reap this world that they have and how much suffering people of color had to go through for them to get this. And so that was really kind of the project of Dear Marcus was like trying to set the context for this place that we have now, which I'm you know aware of from the 70s on, but this that kind of long history of exclusion. All of that stuff, all the coffee bars, all the Pilates studios, the handlebar <laughs> mustaches, whatever, right? All of that, all of that is particularly satirical or at worst horrible yeah. from a from a kind of like historical sociological context when you consider, as you say, what what it took to get there. Yeah. But then again, I'm not saying that exact picture, but mm. like that reality is something that a lot of people would in, would aspire to. Yes, absolutely. Right? Yeah. Like a comfortable neighborhood where right. you can Safe. go, you know, yeah, unmolested yeah. to work and have friends and meet them for I mean, I, I say this is great. Like, like if I were a Californian, if I was in the Midwest, like I understand why you would want to come to Portland. I just want those same people to recognize the cost of the life that they're living, right? Like, not that you'll necessarily not want to be there, but you can't just come here and think everything is free. It's not free, right? Somebody paid for this. Ideally, in an alternate history, right, Mm -hmm. or an alternate future, the tide should lift all the boats, right? right? Everyone should get the Pilates studio. It shouldn't (laughs) be an either or. Right, yeah. You know, originally, economically, in America, that was the cost because literally we stole labor from human beings. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, at this point in history, the well-being of black people in America and the well-being of white people in America shouldn't necessarily be at odds with one another. Exactly. Yeah. You would think, right, with all these resources. Yeah. 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 In the first essay of the book, you say that, like, Mm. this was never our Eden. And Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of talk that I think we should come back to about the hustling that is necessary for survival, the alternative way of making it when, yeah. when you're in that situation. In the very last essay, which is a letter to your daughter, daughter yeah. 
you know, where you're talking about like frantically trying to get to a school dance (laughs) because, you know, she, she didn't grow up with you and you're just like, every minute is precious. And you say in that one, a line that really struck me, which was ignorance is what happens when we try to preserve innocence in the face of living. Mm-hmm. I thought about that in the context of Eden, right? Because Eden mm, is yeah, a state of innocence. innocence yeah. yeah. And I thought that that makes me want to cry because Eden is the state that we should all want to preserve. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> right. Right. I mean, what is it to be a writer? What is it to be an artist? What is it to try to speak your truth, but yeah. to try to remain connected to that part of yourself that was once like a vulnerable right. little child, innocence yeah. as it were. When you think about a, a daughter and it's really, I mean, it's actually kind of sexist to think about that, but I think about my daughter in a, in a different way than I think about my son. Mm. Yeah, you want you both want them to have a kind of openness about the world, right? That that you could do anything, which is a kind of state of innocence because once the world like reports to you the actual circumstances, you <laughs> right. start to believe less and less you could do anything. Right. Um, <laughs> right. But you you want to like imbue them with that if you can. That optimism. Yeah. That hope. yeah. But you know, as as a writer, like innocence won't fill you. Mm. Like curiosity will, but if there's no conflict, mm. what are we writing about, right? I don't very, read very many happy stories. Uh, <laughs> I should probably do more, you know? But I think as a writer, like I'm always trying to examine the friction, right? The conflict. Got you. But for like the people that I love and care about, I want them to have the curiosity, bravery that comes with, oh man, I could. Maybe I could do this. Like, no one has told me no yet. But then, you know, when people are growing and you're still trying to imbue them with something that's contrary to how the world actually operates, then you're stunting them, right? Right. Me calling my daughter princess or not really wanting to see her efloresce at the rate that she was already doing was, that's my problem. That's something that I have to, like, let go of because ultimately she's going to be out in the world and then she's going to be not equipped. Yeah, no, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. And I don't want to keep bringing this back to something that it's not about. Mm -hmm. I couldn't help thinking about the fact, though, that if you grow up in a situation where at every moment there is a serious existential threat to you, I mean, there were times when that wasn't the case in your everyday life, but certainly in your environment, the risks of making the wrong decision were a lot bigger than for me growing up in the suburbs of Bethesda. Ooh, Bethesda. Basketball heaven. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, you were a bo- you were a basketball player. Yeah, yeah. Here, unfortunately, the conversation dies because I don't know a damn thing about sports. But <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, but but that the pressure to make sure you tell all the right stuff to your child and yeah. make, prepare your child for the world. Mm-hmm. What we out here in. Um, the rest, the other America mm-hmm. have heard of as the talk. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, like I could m- imagine that, that that's in there too, you know, yeah. like not wanting to release someone to the wolves. Right, yeah. And then the kind of conviction or affliction that you were the wolf. Mm. That's the... The other part of it, right? Yeah, it's we like, should we should talk we should talk about. Tell me the name of that. The essay. scale. The scale. Yeah. Damn. So for the listeners, I mean, Mitchell is writing about basically the scale of predatory male behavior. Yeah. You know, throughout history and in the present. Yeah. And then you go, you you hold yourself to account. Yeah. Uh, as well as you can, with a lot of like asterisks about how you're still framing the narrative, yeah. you're still the one in control, yeah. but you do you do let the women in your past speak. The structure that I was following was of a criminal profile, and so a part of a criminal profile is what's called victimology, and that's where you do a wholesale investigation on uh, the victim of a crime, and so I just took that as the impetus to do the same thing with women who I had victimized. Right. But in the course of that, I realized that like I was still privileging my voice over there, my experience over there. And I said, well, the only way that I could see to kind of continue was to invite them to share their perspective and then to put it in there, even though all of them didn't want to do that. But, <laughs> you, uh, you even include, yeah, you were yeah. like text message to you know, <laughs> response silence. Yeah. 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 yeah, so not every, and I understand completely, yeah. but I, I felt like if I didn't give them that opportunity, then I was doing 
it, it a disservice. You know, it's like a bunch of men getting in a room talking about how they can do better without w- with their kind of relationships, romantic relationships. But then there's no women in there to <laughs> right, like right, inform right, them. Right, like, right. what kind of conversation is that? <laughs> right? right. So I didn't want to be that person. I was speaking about this earlier is that I started writing that in like 2011 or 2012. Okay. But I finished editing it in the Me Too kind of apex. Right. And so... There were even concerns about like, Mitch, you sure you want to keep this in here? And I still thought it was such a valuable yeah. thing to do. Well, it was the hardest essay that I had to write. It took the longest. First of all, we're all guilty of mm. horrible crimes over the yeah. course of our life. Yeah. And we all do a very good job of like covering it up. Yeah. Um, I was struck, though, by this dissonance between the kind of comprehensively thoughtful and reflective person that you obviously are from mm. all the essays I had read up to that point yeah. and the level of denial in that younger kind of maintaining multiple long-term relationships and lying to yeah. people like that just it, it like how does that sit I mean not I don't mean like what's your final judgment on yourself mm-hmm. I just mean like where are you at with that difference you well know? I, I think it's a lot easier when you don't have to interrogate it and it's a lot easier when the cosmos that you live in either doesn't critique it or kind of elevates it and so it's like a lot easier than you think you were saying to, that like in your circle of guys yeah. that it was an ego boost to be able to yeah. maintain multiple yeah so that I mean it wasn't as hard it's hard it was harder to kind of step back and evaluate it and really you know starting to think about it in 2011 or 2010 when I started think about this I'm like oh this won't stand up to critique a thinking feeling man can't do this in this way. So then it's like, okay, well, what are the what, what are the steps? And that's something I find really interesting throughout all of the essays in mm-hmm. your book is the way that I can see your intellect and ethical philosophy kind of grappling with this is my family, this mm-hmm. is my mother, these things that are happening. I can't support them as right. a grown adult. Yeah. And at the same time, I can't cut it all off. And so what you end up doing is you telescope in and out yeah. from the personal to the historical. You know, in that one essay, you you introduce us to the guy that invented crack. Yeah. I found that extraordinary, an extraordinary way to kind of, you know, not excuse anybody, mm. not nothing, but just get a handle on it. That is... A philosophy, right? No one gets a pass. Everyone is up for interrogation, but then everyone gets a pass in the sense that I recognize that people are humans and that a human being, especially if you recognize the circumstances, if you take a broad look at anyone's circumstances, it's really hard to just convict someone as like a terrible human being, you know, and because I grew up with these people and I knew them as uncles and aunts and cousins and really good friends or the mentors, it wasn't necessarily that hard to see that part of them. But then I also was really interested in like, well, how did my dad become a pimp? Like, where did this come from? You know, like, right. and how could he be the same guy that like put me on his shoulders and took me to the park and then doing these kind of clearly like morally questionable things Hmm. to my mother and with other women. And so how do you reconcile them except that you got to kind of see them in the light of a really broad span of time? Pimps and their prostitutes are interdependent, as you point out. So on the one hand, it's exploitation. On the other hand, it's codependency. And it's also a survival strategy within a very constrained environment. And it's also the culture selling something back, selling their own image back to them. You know, you talk about the movies and the music, Shaft, Superfly, I don't know, what what are the ones you mentioned? Yeah, that's it, Shaft, Superfly. Yeah, Yeah, and, and, and basically this image that is essentially like, a Hollywood image projected back <laughs> into the culture. Right. And monetized. And then embraced and, and made reality. Yeah. It's interesting having grown up around that for so long and to now see it like commodified in the way that it is now from like people who are a great distance <laughs> from the actual struggle of that. Right. So, but I mean, I guess you can say that about, you know, selling drugs too, about basically any kind of underground economy that like people kind of 
can glorify like mafiosos, but right. like really don't understand. No one really wants to be a mafioso. But I mean, <laughs> that, that glorification and those stories and those narratives, they're also fed back into those communities. Yeah. So like, right. you know, you were, talking about, you were talking about how... And again, like I want to be really careful. I want to be really clear. I am not demonizing hip hop or mm. rap music or yeah. anything. But you know, you were talking about how your relationships were with women were very much influenced and, and yeah. colored by the the music you were listening to. Yeah. And likewise, certainly the self image of somebody dealing drugs yeah. and pimping and whatever is yeah. amplified by those cultural products. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. I don't know how one could not be influenced. At that time, I was like riding around listening to the same kind of music every, every day. You know, I go to a friend's house, we're listening to this, we're watching the videos. But I also think like these are also really young men who also don't really have a sense of their identity, right? So they're taking the same cultural cues. They're getting feedback that says like, yes, give them this, give them this. And then they're projecting it back to us. So you really have like guys who are just a few years older than me projecting to me an image that they don't necessarily even have fully defined for themselves, but that they know it can be monetized and that they can live a certain kind of life. So, I mean, it comes really, it's it's cyclical, right? Like, I'm going to give you what I think you need. It's interesting. I just saw, I was traveling like two weeks ago. And saw too short in the airport. Oh, yes, no way. yes. And I started to go up to him. I'm like, no, nah, I'm not gonna go up him because now I had to explain like why I'm so excited to see him. But then on the other hand, like how his music like really kind of fucked you up. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Interesting. So you, 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 you I just let him go past. Yeah. Go. <laughs> um, the commodification of that culture, and there's just no way to talk about this without it coming off wrong but like I grew up you know where I I grew up in the suburbs of Bethesda Mm -hmm. and like in my own little fantasy world I was totally drinking in the the products of very different cultures from my own you had jerry curls I had a wall covered with pictures of Michael Jackson and I I I like (laughs) prayed to become him I would like I would moonwalk I watched the Grammy thing like a hundred times you know grease my penny loafers, <laughs> whatever, right? And so, I mean, I'm out there in my little, like, protected yeah. white bubble uh-huh. where I was, and that had whatever meaning it had for me. But, yeah. like, I don't know. It's well, just it's even strange. Crazy, just, like, what does you, it mean for me to share that, you know? But well, even think about, like, what Michael paid to even become that, right? Like, the Michael you're talking about is, like, Michael with the, I don't know how many surgeries and the light and skin and what, the what, Yeah, Crow, what was right? what I think <laughs> who, who, some some satirical publication referred to as a complete blackectomy. Yeah, like, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, even he, I think what it is, is, like, if you didn't pay for it, it's a different relationship yeah, to yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, like, yeah. you got to pay to really be a creator and to really understand that culture, you actually have to pay that price to get to it. And you can participate in it and you can like it, but like to you're really understand. You're a sort of pretender yeah. in a sense. Yeah. I, I also found really interesting your use of endnotes. <laughs> yeah. The only comparable experience is uh, Infinite Jest by David <laughs> Foster Wallace, yeah. where I also, being the masochist I am <laughs> you read, read, read them all <laughs> and I read yours too including the including that like apples dense <laughs> dense essay on on the production of whiteness yeah. like that was like in one point font you know <laughs> yeah. But, I appreciate that, yeah, man. You yeah. read the end notes, man. You are a good dude. <laughs> <laughs> but I, but I, I, um, I thought it was really interesting. How were you thinking about those? Like, what was oh, that for you? you know? Man, so they were footnotes in the beginning, and I, I'm in a workshop. I've been in a workshop now for I don't know ten years or something. Mm. And my workshop, I have one guy who like he he's a contrarian, right? But he was like, you can't put these in here. No one wants footnotes. And I was like, no, nah, I'm doing it. I'm doing mm. it, man. I'm doing it. And then I got to my editor and she was like, Mitch, like it's too dense. Like, you know, because that long footnote for apples was just imagine that in the middle of the essay. So it would be like 30 pages of a footnote, right? right? So right. you can't do that. Even though I was willing to do it. In, re- uh, in reality, yeah, for the li- reader, it's it's dissonant. It's difficult. You, yeah. you kind of like, I found myself sometimes 
reading the whole chapter and then going to the end notes, yeah. you know, like, cause it's hard to bounce back and forth. Yeah. yeah. So I went from that to, okay. So my compromise with my editor was they would become end notes. Mm. So, you know, if a person wanted to read them like you, you, they, and if they didn't, then they would still have the experience of the book. And I was like, oh, that's fair. Then my editor in chief, so the lady who runs a Scrivener, she was like, Mitch, you should do blind in notes. And so that's when I took the numbers out. So there's actually uh-huh. the quotes at the mm. end, like send you back to where the note is, but right. it's, there's no kind of indication of that on the page. And I thought, well, that's the best way to do this so that the person who doesn't want to read them just you're basically not even aware that they exist. And you're not interrupted and you're not struck with the like constant guilt of yeah. like, <laughs> I, didn't I, go. I, I didn't read the end though. Yeah. 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 You know, one thing I was, you know, in the essay revision, yeah. which beautifully pairs the idea of revision in writing mm. with the idea of choices in life and the yeah. extent to which you can revise the course of a life. Yeah. You were talking a bit about the, the process of revision and like I was wondering, you know, for you writing these things which are so personal, what has it been like for you the opening yourself to editors and critiques yeah. and, and all of that stuff? It sounds like you're at a point where you're pretty open to mm. that. I had the benefit of the residue years and having exposed a kind of central wound that my, my mother's addiction and then my kind of trouble with the criminal justice and even my brothers that I think that's been part of the wound too so like once I had did that it felt like it was scary but at the end of it was power and so I took that lesson that the more that I shared the more vulnerable that I was actually the more powerful that I would be and so Whatever critique, now I'm open to criticism, but it would never make me fold because I had already gone past the kind of fear of the repercussions of sharing this kind of stuff. Is there a part of you that, you know, when you, someone's coming out and saying, like, mm-hmm. restructure it in this way, rethink it in this oh, way, yeah. where you're like, fuck you, this is my <laughs> life, you know, like, like, I know this, like, this is my heart, like, on the page. You got to trust. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm lucky that I have a really great <laughs> editor. I have the same editor as Jasmine Ward and uh, Kiese Lehman, who just wrote Heavy. And uh-huh. she's, like, is a friend, so I think she also understands me. And then her way of editing is to, like, ask questions. Got it. Right? So, like, why is this here? Why did you structure this and that? And I can really come to it on my own. But in terms of, like, sending out to, like, magazines, I have had so few publications because I'm, like, unwilling to compromise my vision of something for the publication. So, so someone I might will take come one. back to you and say, if you did this and this, and you'll be yeah. like, nah. Yeah, well, no, I won't even, I rarely have that kind of conversation <laughs> because I don't even send it. Like, it's <laughs> like, you, now you. it's like my, ed, my, my agent will send out something and they'll say like, Mitch, we want to shorten it a little bit. Can we take out this paragraph? And I'll go, oh yeah, cool. But like, in terms of like restructuring or like really changing the ideas, because my thing is if the voice isn't there, it's almost like I didn't even do it. And gotcha. so, right, right. so, so, so many houses want you to kind of conform to the way the voice that they use to for storytelling and I'm like well if I do that I'm just another person out here scribbling and I I can't afford that I totally understand that so you sort of like sidewinded your way into relationships yeah. of trust that yeah. enabled you to nurture what you were trying to do right as opposed to just kind of exposing it to the eyes of strangers right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and I will say about your your written voice mm-hmm. that it's beautiful it's cool how it effortlessly, it's sort of an effortless hybrid of of a more kind of formal academic distance mm-hmm. and then just a much more lyrical, like obviously just the way kind of your mind works, mm-hmm. you know, and you kind of flow back and forth between those things. Yeah. Sometimes they're both in a single paragraph, whatever. Yeah. It just feels special. Yeah. Well, that that's the goal, man. It's like <laughs> how can I be my most self on the page? That's it. Like I'm trying Mm. to like, it's really like me on steroids, you know, like I want to be, I wish I could be this articulate just standing and talking, but if you give me, you know, a couple of revisions and a dictionary and a thesaurus, like I can get to it. And that, and it's really uh, on the other side, it's like, I'm maybe not that hip, but if you like (laughs) give me, you know, the chance to like remember what happened and like, well, who are my coolest friends and like how we kind of moved around in the world. I'm like, I can, I can get there. Um, oh, so that's, that's why revision is so important to me because I'll work and work. I mean, when I went from hardcover to paperback in the residue years, 
I found like a typo in it. I was like, oh, I called my editor. Can I change the typo? Sure, Mitch, no problem. I found like two. I said, oh, <laughs> you, you, you mind if I change that? She said, sure. I said, well, can I change a line with it? She's like, yeah, no problem. I called her back. I said, how much can I edit? <laughs> she was like, Mitch, if you edit this much, they're going to charge you and do this. And I still made like 15% edits. So from hardcover to paperback, 15% like, of it is revised, yeah. edited. So that's how much I believe in. And I know that it's probably going to happen with this too. Shall we move into the crazy second part of the show? Yes, right. let's try it. Yeah. So <laughs> this is the nerve-wrecking part. No, yeah. it's not. So <laughs> the whole point of this is for us both to just kind of like openly watch these videos, uh-huh. see what they're about, okay. react how we react. You okay. know, like if we're like, that makes no sense yeah. because like, that's fine. <laughs> It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I, I take it back. I'm scared of this video. <laughs> oh, wow. Just kidding. So this is Kevin Zolman, who is an expert on game theory. And the video is called Game Theory, Science is About More Than Truth. Uh, game theory can be applied to scientific understanding in a lot of different ways. One of the interesting things about contemporary science is that it's done by these large groups of people who are interacting with one another. So science isn't just the lone scientist in his lab removed from everyone else, but rather it's teams working together, sometimes in competition with other teams who are trying to beat them out to make a big discovery. So it's become much more like a kind of economic interaction. These scientists are striving for credit from their peers, for grants from federal agencies, and so a lot of the decisions that they make are strategic in nature. They're trying to decide what things will get funded, what strategies uh, are most likely to lead to a scientific advance? How can they do things so as to get a leg up on their competition and also get the acclaim of their peers? Game theory helps us to understand how the incentives that scientists face in trying to get credit, in trying to get grants, in trying to get acclaim might affect the decisions that they make. And sometimes there are cases where scientists striving to get acclaim can actually make science worse because a scientist might commit fraud if he thinks he can get away with it, or a scientist might uh, rush a result out the door even though she's not completely sure that it's correct in order to beat the competition. So those of us who use game theory in order to try and understand science apply it in order to understand how those incentives that scientists face might eventually impact their ability to produce truths and useful information that we as a society can go on, or how those incentives might encourage them to do things that are harmful to the progress of science by either publishing things that are wrong or fraudulent or even withholding information that would be valuable. This is one of the big problems that a lot of people have identified with the way that scientific incentives work right now. Scientists get credit for publication, and they're encouraged to publish exciting new findings that demonstrate some new phenomena that we've never seen before. But when a scientist fails to find something, that's informative too. The fact that I was unable to reproduce a result of another scientist shows that maybe that was an error. But the way that the system is set up right now, I wouldn't get credit for publishing uh, what's called a null result, a finding where I didn't discover something that somebody else had claimed to discover. So as a result, when we look at the scientific results that show up in the journals that have been published, it turns out that it's skewed towards positive findings and against null results. A lot of different people have suggested that we need to change the way that scientists are incentivized by rewarding scientists more for both publishing null results and for trying to replicate the results of others. In particular, in fields like psychology and medicine, places where there's a lot of findings and there are lots of things to look at, people really think that we might want to change the incentives a little bit in order to encourage more duplication of effort in order to make sure that a kind of uh, exciting but probably wrong result doesn't end up uh, going unchallenged in the literature. I was reading um, 
Yeah, it was W.E.B. Du Bois, and he was proclaiming the role of a black writer. And he said that the black writer's work should be in service of justice. And then he also says, like, if you want to be in publishing, that you basically have to go through, like, a, a white system, that all the publishers are white, they own all this. And he was like, what they do is they present a tacit bribe. They were tacitly bribing you to like produce a certain kind of work, which also kind of reified their idea of the work you should be producing. And so that struck me when he was saying which like- Which in his time meant? Uh, Richard Wright's native son, right? So everyone was writing like realist fiction. And right, so they right. just wanted like another Richard Wright, like just do something that like talks about racism, indicts white people, but also makes us feel good for not being those white people, <laughs> right? And then, you know, that kind of shifted. We got the Harlem Renaissance and they're like, we write like Kane, like Gene Toomer, like we can be like artists and we don't really have to be concerned. So they're like right, creating this right, kind of different right. kinds of work, but all of it is incentivized because none of us, we don't come to this work unless it's through a major publisher. Right. And so so he was saying that they were like incentivizing people to produce what they needed, right? Like you got to have the big finding and that that put a lot of pressure on people to make a certain kind of thing, even if they were premature in like re producing the results or like even if it wasn't ready. I think there was a quote in your book. I th was it Langston <laughs> Hughes who was talking about how basically heaping scorn on poets that don't want to be black poets. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And he was like, when I hear someone say they don't want to be a black poet, I'm like, you don't want to be yourself. Right. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah. Right? But I thought about it from that other perspective of uh -huh. that coercion of the marketing machine, the yeah. publishing machine that demands that a young black writer speak in a certain kind yeah. of voice and that resisting that might be something somebody might want to do. I felt this pressure when the other book was coming out because I'm like, I could just lean into this, I was a drug dealer and now I'm changed narrative. Right, right. And like, there's a built-in audience for that. I could have just wrote a memoir the first time out and like just really leaned into that. And I could have done the same thing with this and made it more of a memoir, less right. essay-ish. But that's like too easy. That just feels like, like, why am I doing this if I'm just <laughs> right. out here doing what they anticipate, one, but then like something that's not really saying anything new. So I think that that connects to this because there's a pressure for the scientists to always say something new. Well, I mean, and so, I mean, so long as the publishing industry is for profit, yeah. I don't know how, <laughs> how you would tweak the incentives. They need to open their perspectives that other identities exist mm -hmm. and that people will care about them. Right. You know? For every great book, there's like probably like a hundred rejections behind that book because the great book is the one that was the big risk. And sure. so someone had to take that risk. Like it's easy to like, I think it's easier to kind of see, oh, this is in the vein of this. Um, I just read an article mm, a few weeks ago about, um, you know, people say that like, what's well, not even say that the publishing industry is like 85% white and it might be like 70% women or something like okay. that. It's like, then they were talking about what kind of books they were producing. And they said, people often look at how many books by persons of color are being produced by any given uh, publisher, but what they should be looking at is comp titles. When a book is about to be bought by a publisher, that they ask themselves, well, what are the comp titles for this book? And that the comp titles really define what book gets published and like what the value of that book is in the marketplace. So for the listeners, comp titles are comparables, like right. titles that have sold well yeah. in the industry. Yeah. But if you write a book that there is no comp title that they can think of, then it's like, well, what do we do now, you know? Well, I mean, the incentive, so the incentive for taking the gamble on the potentially great book yeah. is, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's the payoff, right? I mean, it's the, you know, it's a high risk, but also high reward right. kind, of, kind of situation. Yeah. So if a publishing house is big enough that it can afford to lose a few bucks now right. and then. Or the reward is 
having published a great book and it might, you know, that might not necessarily, you know, a lot of literary writers love Gene Toomer's Cain, which didn't sell anything when it came out and then went out of print and right. had to be kind of reinvigorated. So right. you might have to wait 20 years to catch <laughs> the wind. But I mean, for that to happen, the from the perspective of the, the publisher, Publisher, the one who bought the book, they have to be in a protected situation where they know they're not going to lose their job over it, you know, like to be able to take that kind of gamble and get something out there into the world, whether or not it's a great success. Yeah. It has to be an infrastructure. Rachel Kajigansa, I think that's how I pronounce her name, wrote an essay in Harper's Two things that were really struck me in that essay. One was that she was the second, it was like 1990 something when she was there, mm. and she was only the second black intern in the magazine's history. Oh, this wow. is in like the night, it might have been in 2000. So that was one thing. But the other thing she said is like one of her jobs was to go downstairs and like look through the archives for something or like rearrange archives. And she found, I think it was like the receipt for, I want to say it was like Fire This Time or something. It was a James Baldwin essay that had been like anthologized for ages. And he, he was paid $250 for the essay. Oh and I was God. like, wow, like this is a historical document that like probably millions of people have read this, studied it, and he got 250 bucks. <laughs> I'm like hanging some little hope on royalties or yeah. something. I'm like... <laughs> Probably not, though, no. right? Yeah. <laughs> um, let's see what the second of the two okay. surprise clips. So this this is a man with the improbable name of Sean McFate, and the video is called "Billionaire Warlords: Why the Future Is Medieval." The United States, especially, has been now accustomed for 25 years as being the universal and unitary superpower. That's not gonna last forever. I think most people know this, even though some may be in cognitive dissonance over this. Uh, The truth is there are rising powers like Russia and China, but there are other rising powers too. One of our problems is that we live in a state-centric view of the universe. We, international relations for most of us is run by states. Nation states are the global political unit of the international order. And this is what we learn in social studies as kids. But that is actually not the way the world has worked for most of human history. States are actually about three or 400 years old. Before there were states or empires and there were tribes and everything else. The, the reign of states and only states can wage war legitimately, that is coming to a close. We're actually going back to the status quo ante of when global order was a free-for-all, of like the Middle Ages, of antiquity, but what became before. And one of the things of that free-for-all is that who else were superpowers? It wasn't just, so like in the Middle Ages, the papacy was a superpower. Rich aristocracies you know, were superpowers. And we're going back to this world again. So you know, we have random billionaires today who have as much power as states. There are 62 people in the planet who own the equivalent of half the world's wealth. 62 people, you can put them all into a bus. Um, You you have multinational corporations. We have the Fortune 500, which are more powerful than most of the states in the world. Of the 190, 194 states in the world, most are fragile or failed. We only think the top 25 states, like the US, Western Europe, Eastern Asia, et cetera, but that's, that's an anomaly. The, ma- the vast majority of states in the world are more either regimes hiding inside states or just outright dumpster fires. So what we're gonna see in the future is those who have wealth and political power who can also hire their own private armies now become superpowers. Homie is predicting the end. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I, I hope Sean McFate hasn't actually accurately divined our fate. Um, I was wondering while I was watching that, how much of America's fate, like where we're at 
right now in terms of being, for all intents and purposes, kind of on the decline in yeah. terms of global influence yeah. and credibility yeah. um, <laughs> is, is a result of that flaw at the heart of the nation that goes back to the contrast between a nation founded on liberty right. that, that has slaves. Yeah. I gave this talk last year. It was actually called The Other America, but at the end of the talk, I was talking about the theory of when a person gains his conscience, right? Mm -hmm. And so they say that we gain it around three or four years old, and that like sets the bar for the rest of your life, right? What is right and what is wrong. And so then I extrapolate that and I said, well, America is like a young, fairly young nation compared to the other nations. So then like what would be that span of time which we would consider America's childhood, right? And so- In our childhood, we had Native American extermination, slavery, and let's say maybe that ends at the Civil War. So there's this quote, I think it's attributed to Martin Luther King, but I don't like the trajectory of justice. Oh, yeah. The, it's the, the history, moral, moral arc. The moral arc of the universe bends towards justice. Right. And I said, well, what if it's not that the moral arc bends towards justice, but that as a nation, we kind of revert back to our original conscience? Mm. And so if, if that's the case, then our original conscience includes Native American extermination, the history of slavery. And it seems like we're kind of reverting back to that. I feel like what we're seeing is the thing coming apart at the seams. Yeah. And so no one voice can speak for that whole right. fragmentation, right? Yeah. And so I think like, okay, Vietnam, we had kind of a national reckoning around the military, right. you know, civil rights movement before that. But civil rights movement is black America mostly advocating for it itself. Yeah. Whereas, and then Vietnam is like, you know, a kind of national self-reckoning. And, yeah. and now there seems to be in the progressive side of the country, mm-hmm. a kind of self-reckoning going on. I yeah. mean, it may be too little, too late, maybe whatever, but, mm. but where, you know, I do think that organizations are making a real effort to become better integrated, better, you know, and like, yeah. and not to have like a panel of all white faces every <laughs> five minutes. But then on the other hand, you have this kind of backlash rise of, of white supremacy. And yeah. so where the future goes is anyone's guess. Well, according to him, the billionaire, and I can, I feel like, you know, one, you know, you, you read about them establishing their bunkers and right, stuff right, in, right, right. in New Zealand. <laughs> Everyone knows about this. Yeah. Yeah. But also just the fact that they have that much wealth. They ran uh, Bezos and Amazon out of New York, but like, and maybe part of that is like he's going through his own personal problems now. But sure, like, sure. I think that what can't he do? Like, what can't he influence? No, yeah, the right. 62 billionaires that owned, what did he say? How much percent of the world? Oh, uh, God. I'm too much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm suspect of all predictions, predictions of yeah. how the world is going to go. And I think that's probably healthy. Like, I think that a lot of futurists are just wrong all the time. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, They're incentivized to make grand predictions. <laughs> precisely. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Game theory of futurism. Yeah. You want to, <laughs> you want to be shocking and surprising and not say like, this is the way the world ends, not with a bang. But right. With a limp, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, I was in Brazil for the new year mm. and uh, our tour guide, He's taking us around. And one of the things I noticed why, before I went on the tour was like I was in these, what I guess are their expensive restaurants. And like there were no like brown Brazilians in these fancy restaurants. I was like, sure. this is interesting, right? Everybody here is celebrating. I'm like, where are the brown people? So my tour guide was brown. So then he's like, yeah, you know, I want to talk about the history of slavery. And I didn't know this, but Brazil was the last country in the Western Hemisphere to abolish slavery. They did so, I want to say it was like 1889. So then they was damn near in the 20th century yeah. before they abolished slavery. And then what they did afterwards was they were scared of the, quote, Negro problem. So they started to import Europeans to whiten the nation. Um, mm. And when I heard of that, I started to think about, like, how these kind of current immigration policies are connected. If you kind of think of him discouraging certain groups of people to almost allowing a whiteness to kind of flourish again. Something that, yeah, that I found really moving uh, in your book, you, you had an essay, is it called Composite Pops? Composite Pops, yep. It's about how, you know, and you were talking and you were at great pains to 
explain that you you know this wasn't meant to be a sexist thing, but to say that a boy needs a father. Yeah. And you know, you know, obviously, modern gender theory can go in a lot of directions right. with that, whatever. But I understand what you're talking about, uh-huh. and that for you, you know, that meant putting a dad together from multiple yeah. male influences. I didn't even obviously realize it at the time that that what I that's what I was doing. But I do think that I was always an observant kid, and I noticed qualities that I wanted to emulate. Mm. Um, I don't know if I notice my dearths as much as I obviously do now, but like I was like, oh, that's something that I want to emulate. And also, I think it had to come from people who I could recognize, like genuinely cared about me because it could have been right. a, a quality in someone that was kind of more distant from me. And I might not have like gotten to it as much because it's like, oh, that's. What does that necessarily have to do? He's not even trying to to give that to me. I mean, it's like sunshine onto the growing yeah. seed of your self-esteem. Yeah, absolutely. To, to reach for those ones that love you. Yeah. You know, the last person that I talk about, I was in in college at the time. So, you know, still trying to kind of figure out what my goal was. I guess I didn't really have a vision, but I needed a goal. <laughs> and, right, you know, right. and it turned out that the goal ended up being like graduate college. And that was enough to like get me through a lot of strife. It's the love that's the thing, because a lot yeah. of the l- individual lessons yeah. that you're learning along the way, like the pose is the pose, which you talk about in that essay is about is like, you know, in dealing with women. Right. Right. Keep your head down and keep your palm out. Yeah. Right. So yeah. it's like dehumanize them yeah. and just like take, 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 take. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously that is not over the course of a life, the most sustainable <laughs> yeah, <laughs> lesson, It right? won't work. Right? Your dad, your your biological dad mm-hmm. taught you to swim yeah. by throwing you into the pool, yeah. right? There too, I'm like, okay, because you're giving him praise. You're basically saying, you know, he taught me as best he knew, like, right. this is a struggle. Like, right. I'm, I'm preparing you for it. Yeah. But that's a traumatic way to teach somebody <laughs> to swim. Tell me about it. I know more about the way that he was raised and his struggles and the struggles that his uh, his brothers had. I mean, I have uncles that have, I mean, you, you name it. And so I think his parenting was a reflex against all of that. Right. And the reflex was like a really strong reflex. I did not recognize that then. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was mad about like getting my Jerry Crow wet at the time, but <laughs> I also like, you know, later on, I'm like, well, I'm actually now swimming. Right. So like, even though I wouldn't emulate that kind of parenting style, like I do, I recognize why he did it. And that's again, the kind of thing that you have to do is like, yeah, like it's easy to say like, well, that's actually kind of a violence against your child, but then not to recognize like, well, there's this kind of long history of like, well, my dad might have had violence committed against him. And like, what did that do to like how he perceived how one should raise a child? And then there were all these kind of things happening in the mid 1980s when that happened. that like, I need to protect you, son. Like, I don't even know if you know how bad it is out here, you know, so accept this lesson. And then we weren't living together. So he didn't have a lot of time to like right. talk out a lesson with me. Right. So right. now I recognize all of those things. Then it was like, I'm swallowing water and now I can swim. But that's the thing. Like everything in context looks different. Because there is love there. Right. Yeah. That's love. Yeah. Just figuring out a way to express it. Seeing where where the love is behind all that. Right. Because there was no like, I love you, son. <laughs> you know, it's like, you got to divine that on your own. Mitchell S. Jackson, thank you so much for being on Think Again. This was a great conversation. Man, this was great. I really appreciate this uh, opportunity. Sometimes it strikes me that all of these conversations, no matter how different their surface details, are just one big ongoing conversation about how we're supposed to live in the world with ourselves and with each other. Whether we're talking about entropy and bacteria or colonizing Mars. I know details matter, but in another sense, they don't. It seems to me we have to keep our eye firmly fixed on the big questions, especially when we're deep in the weeds about how to get good things done. Can I ask you a favor? This is a non sequitur, but if this show has meaning in your life, please spread the word. Ratings and reviews on iTunes and other platforms are a big help to us, and so is sharing the show with people who know you and trust you. That's it. That's the favor. 
I'll be back next week with something both completely different and entirely the same. See you then. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.